Welcome to our Sunday evening service at Calvary Evangelical Church here in Brighton. My name is Jerome and I'm one of the members here at the church. We are a Christian church and we love to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This evening we'll pray, we'll sing hymns and we'll hear a sermon preached from God's word. Now it's our usual practice to preach systematically through a Bible book. We're currently going through a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in those eventful last chapters where Christ is moving towards the cross. This evening, we'll continue hearing what our Lord has to say through this wonderful Gospel book. Now, it's my earnest desire that the Spirit of God would apply this word to your hearts. But let's start with a prayer for the Lord to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, We come before you and we thank you so much that you are a great God and a good God, full of mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you, Father, that at this difficult time, this time of restrictions and this time of being limited in many ways, Lord, you have borne us on eagle's wings as a church You've you've protected us and you've carried us through. And we are so conscious of the uh, restrictions that we are under, Lord. But we remember that you are a boundless and blessed God. You are the infinite one, eternal and unchangeable in your being. And you are everywhere present. Father, and although we cannot gather in person this evening... We can know that you are with us wherever we are and that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we do pray for our government at this time. We pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment as they manage this whole coronavirus crisis, Lord. I pray that they would be targeted in their restrictions, Father. And I pray that they would be mindful of those who are most vulnerable. And I do pray that they would also be mindful of your church, the church of Jesus Christ. And I pray that their restrictions would not disenable those who are lonely and those who are isolated to be among your people and to gather as your people and to worship you pray, Father, for your church. I thank you for the many churches that are gathering now. Lord God, I pray your hand to be upon them and to protect them from um, this this virus. But I pray for us, Lord, as we, um, we consider meeting together in October. And I pray that you would preside over all those plans, that you would superintend and govern over all those plans to around the technology and the practicalities of us gathering, Lord. Oh, be with us, I pray. And I do pray, Lord, for our, our elder Chris, our dear brother and our elder at this time. Lord, would you surround him with songs of deliverance, mercy and peace. I pray that he would know your rest and your closeness. Just bless him and his family at this time of illness, Lord and need of you. So we pray you bless this time, this evening. We pray for your presence to be with each and every one of us as we hear your word. 
In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. Let's sing our first hymn, Man of Sorrows. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Saviour. Mocked by insults harsh and crude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Saviour. Guilty, vile and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Saviour. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, scripture reading this evening is in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are looking at chapter 27 and verses 11 to 23. So that's the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, chapter 27, verses 11 to 23. I will be reading from the ESV version. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even, a single ch- not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, 
his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us sing that well-loved and enduring hymn that celebrates our Lord's saving work for us. Amazing grace.
going to now pray for, for the word. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you to hear your word proclaimed, to hear your word preached. I pray that you would help me. Lord, I pray that I would diminish and that you would increase. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you and that this would honour and hold up Christ in all his beauty and glory. I pray, Father, that we would rivet our eyes on the text, that I would not read into the text, but I would expound the text faithfully. I pray for great blessing for your people and for anyone who's hearing this this evening, Lord. I pray that these are not mere words, but I pray for the empowering and working of your Holy Spirit through the preaching. And all this I pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In these passages, we see the most infamous trial in human history which displays the highest level of injustice and the greatest expression of human depravity and wickedness. In chapter 26, where Christ is before Caiaphas and the council, we saw the culpability, the guilt, and the judgment of the religious establishment who refused to acknowledge and bow the knee to Christ's kingship. They were seeking to charge Christ with blasphemy. Matthew 26 says, And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, And coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. Here was a clear declaration from Christ, quoting from the prophet Daniel, of his messiahship. Within the trial before us this evening, Christ's judgment is upon the civil establishment. And we see the depravity of a system that does not acknowledge or respect Christ's lordship. The the accusation leveled against him now is treason and sedition. The passages before us reveal much about ourselves as sinners without Christ. But most importantly, what we see in these passages shining through the backdrop of darkness, depravity, injustice and corruption is how Christ is our suffering sin bearer and righteous substitute. I'd like, to, I'd like us to look at this um, under three, three main headings. So they are Christ before his accusers, Christ as substitute for a notorious prisoner, and Christ is sentenced to death by a cowardly governor. So our first point, silent before his accusers. 
The theme of Christ as king fulfilling God's purpose of redemption continues. Even within this dark narrative, he's ushering in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew has continually highlighted this great clash of kingdoms. On one hand, the kingdom of heaven, and then the kingdom of the evil one, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. The assault of the kingdom of darkness becomes greater through this civil ruler as Christ Christ sets his face like flint and does not shrink from his mission to destroy the devil. Verse 11 says, Jesus stood before the governor. Let's stop for a moment and think about who this is standing before the governor. This is the son of God, the one who will judge the thoughts, words and actions of all men. This is the God-man, the incarnate word, and he's allowing himself to be judged by a mere man in his humiliation. So who's this man that's examining and judging Christ? Well, this is Pontius Pilate. He was the governor of Judea between AD 26 and 36 for 10 years. His title was prefect of Judea. He was granted the power of supreme judge. This meant that he had the sole authority to order a criminal's execution. His main responsibility was to maintain law and order in the province. He was known to be an insensitive, cruel and harsh leader. And he despised the Jews. Now the Sanhedrin, they were willing to use him as a political pawn to accomplish their goal of destroying Jesus, despite his utter disdain for the Jews. You see, he saw them as a problematic and turbulent people. As we said earlier, the Sanhedrin saw Jesus as guilty of a religious offense, which is, according to their thinking, blasphemy. Now, in order for Jesus to be guilty of a capital crime, this wasn't enough. It needed to be a civil crime. So they took his claim of messiahship and they twisted it into a kind of political charge of of sedition. Now, remember, the people had mixed views of Jesus at this time. Many wanted a kind of military messiah to take them back to the good old days of King David, to to overthrow Rome. And this is a very politically charged time. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, according to the expositor's Greek testament, the you here is emphatic. It's as if he's saying, are you the king of the Jews? You? Really? Pilate doesn't believe their accusations. He doesn't believe that Jesus is a violent revolutionary or insurrectionist. This man, he has no prestige. He's got no wealth. He's got no troops. He's got no military following. Now, Jesus answers, as you say. And by answering, as you say, he appears ambiguous. He appears indirect. It's as if he's saying, I'm not a king like you understand. However, on a deeper level, what you say is true. I'm not a political or military threat to you or to Rome, but I am a king. Pilate could never begin to envisage the quality 
of Christ's kingship. I think John 18, 36 sheds further light on what he means when Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He's saying my kingdom, it's not a territorial or geographic kingdom, although it'll cover the entire world and every nation. It's not a military kingdom, although my subjects are caught up in mortal combat in our spiritual warfare. It's not a political kingdom, although kings and princes will bow the knee to me, either in this life or the life to come. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. The following verses describe Christ giving no answer to his accusers' charges and Pilate being amazed. Now, we need to pause for a moment and consider this this profound silence. And silence can sometimes say so much more than words. The chief priests were becoming increasingly forceful Yet our saviour, he did not utter a word. In one sense, this silence was a way of Christ not giving any credibility to their trumped up accusations. And Christ was above disputation at this point, as his hour had come. And as 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We see here how his silence expresses his kingship. He's bearing our sins and showing his total obedience to his father's plan of redemption. Now, there were times when Christ answered those who were opposing him with laser-sharp wisdom and profound knowledge. However, now he's remaining silent. Consider for a moment what what would happen if Christ employed all the wisdom and all the knowledge that he had. He, He was capable to argue his case. He would be able to call a legion of angels, but God's plan would not progress. He was calmly submitting to the process that would lead to his death which must happen. Here is a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I found Thomas Manton to be particularly helpful here, In his commentary on these verses in Isaiah, he says, The excellency of Christ was hidden under a veil of meanness and miseries, and that here his great patience is displayed as, listen to this, he he sweetly acquiesces to providence, suffering unjustly for our sake and in our stead, yet spoke not a word. We see Christ as our sacrificial lamb, pure, harmless, and undefiled, being brought to the slaughter as what Manton calls an emblem of innocence, meekness, and patience. 
His silence unveils his true identity as our sin bearer, taking upon himself the guilt and condemnation legally reckoned guilty, although innocent in himself. Because our substitute needs to be legally guilty to be our substitute and to provide satisfaction for our sins, suffering as a ransom for us. He would not defend himself. Now, Pilate's amazement may be due to his recognition that Christ is innocent, yet he's calmly unruffled. He's not saying a word, despite all the accusations leveled against him. Christ shows so much self-control, so much poise and dignity before his accusers. Beloved, do, do you see here your peace, your hope, your reconciliation with God as a result of these silent sufferings? Are you captivated afresh with the love of our Lord, the one who was condemned as guilty in our place that we may be justified? My second point is substitute for a notorious prisoner. Verse 15 says, Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowds any one prisoner who they wanted. We mustn't miss the timing of these events. The timing, I think, is symbolic, given that this is the Passover feast. That time when the unblemished Paschal lamb is sacrificed as a substitute for the people's sins. We know that the Passover sacrifice was a type of Christ, and it pointed to Christ's sacrificial work. It appeared that there was a custom at the time of the feast to honour the Jews where a prisoner was released, a kind of amnesty. Now, Pilate, he has a problem on his hands. He has a dilemma. He doesn't believe Christ is guilty. However, he recognises that the situation is politically charged. On one hand, he wants to please the leaders. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to misgovern the people. and He wants to please the people. He sees this as a way of kind of resolving the dilemma and escaping responsibility. He tries to manipulate the crowds into choosing Jesus over a wicked criminal. In verse 16, we meet Barabbas, the notorious prisoner. The word notorious can have either a a positive or negative connotation. It can mean positively illustrious or notable. Um, I think the authorised version says notable. I I think the NIV says well-known. Um, In in, in a bad sense, it can mean notorious or infamous. The SV favours notorious, and we know from the Gospels of Mark and Luke that he was a violent rebel against civil authority. Some commentators suggest that he was a revolutionary-type figure, a kind of hero, uh, a popular insurrectionist, something akin to a Robin Hood-type figure. Barabbas is the real insurrectionist and revolutionary. All that Jesus was being accused of, Barabbas was. The name Barabbas literally means son of the father. Some early manuscripts of Matthew give the full name of Jesus Barabbas. People of God, we cannot miss the picture of substitution here. The just one 
taking the place of the unjust. It's even been suggested that the third cross was meant for Barabbas. Our Lord and Saviour went to the cross and he died for Barabbas. He also dies for the very sins that Barabbas is guilty of. We have such a clear and wonderful picture of the gospel. Can we, can we not see ourselves in Barabbas? One commentator describes Barabbas as an emblem of those for whom Christ died for. We may not be notorious prisoners. However, we, by virtue of being in Adam, lost in our sins, have committed what Sprawl calls cos- called cosmic treason. We were true insurrectionists in our hatred towards God and, and his law. Yet we see that like Barabbas, he dies for us. He became a curse for us. He took upon himself the just penalty of sin for us. By virtue of our union with Christ, we can now know the freedom that Barabbas experienced and so much more. We know an everlasting and eternal freedom. Pilate was aware of what was going on. He could see that this was envy that had driven them to deliver, deliver him up. This shines a light on their sinful pride. They were more concerned about their popularity, they were more concerned about their position than Christ. And, and Christ was a threat to them. Now, pride and envy can be insidious and destructive sins, particularly in the church. I've recently been saddened um, seeing various inter- internet news feeds about um, Christian leaders having fallen. Christian leaders, in, in, in one instance, a well-known uh, ministry. Um, and I don't know all that is going on there. I don't understand all the ins and outs, and I'm sure it's very complex. But what seems to, to be happening in, in these situations, there seems to be some sinful pride. There seems to be something about power, and there's something about wanting prestige and prominence. And, and beloved, we do need to be vigilant, to get vigilant against these sins. They can be more subtle, and they can have a respectable veneer. And it's not just leaders, it's, it's us as just members in the church. James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James beforehand has said this is worldly, earthly, and demonic. This is demonic. The leaders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And we see the fickleness, the depravity, and the kind of mob thinking of the crowd who were previously shouting, Hosannas. They become more frenzied. They're shouting for Christ to be crucified. Now, we need to be careful that we don't see ourselves as far removed from this crowd. We can see ourselves without Christ, despising Christ, wanting this one not to rule over us. This is what we were like before Christ came into our hearts and our lives and changed us. 
This is the reason our Lord went to the cross. For sinful humanity, sinners like you and sinners like me. Don't we need this saviour? My third point is sentenced to death by a cowardly governor. We've seen how Pilate was trying not to offend the authorities. He was wanting to please the leaders and the crowd. But things just aren't working out for him. They're not working out as he had hoped. And in verses 24 to 26, Pilate's cowardice and compromise and attempt to abdicate responsibility becomes more apparent. He's been warned by his wife's dream of Christ's righteousness. God in his providence enables a pagan woman to be troubled by Christ's righteousness. She also has a troubled conscience. And this underscores Christ's innocence and his messianic identity. Although she warns him, and God has providentially spoken to her, this doesn't lead to a change in events or circumstances. It just further confirms Pilate's guilt and cowardice. In verse 23, he questions the crowd when they demand Christ's crucifixion. Why? What evil has he done? He knows Christ is innocent, but political expediency and compromise win the day. He wants to avoid a riot. He wants to keep peace. And he wants to keep order at any cost. He wants to keep his position intact. How unlike our Lord and Saviour is Pilate in his cowardice and lack of principle. He thought by washing his hands in a kind of ceremonial gesture, his conscience would somehow be cleansed and satisfied. He believed himself to be absolved and free of responsibility. He was self-deceived. The fear of people and maintaining peace can make us do things or go with things that our conscience is uneasy with. We need to be guided by principles that go beyond what is expedient and what is popular. And people of God, I do believe that we are going to need to do this more and more when we consider the route our culture is going down. In verse 25, when all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children, we see this as utterly shocking at the brazen disregard and contempt for Christ. Now, apparently, this was a common idiom for denoting culpability for someone's death. The people are placing responsibility directly on themselves. They're bringing upon themselves judgment, which we see partially fulfilled in, in, the te- in AD 70 with the d- destruction of the temple. In verse 26, we read of Christ experiencing the most horrific and torturous suffering and being delivered up for crucifixion. The word scourging describes being flogged with something called a flagellum. This was a a kind of wooden handle with a a series of short leather cords. It was nine strands, and they would have things like sharp pieces of metal, bone, lead balls, and in some instances, hooks. And the whip would rip into the victim's back, tearing it apart, exposing muscle, bone, and even organs. This was truly brutal. 
Unlike the Jews, Rome put no restrictions on the number of lashes. Beloved, this scourging was vicarious. What do I mean by that? Well, this was done on our behalf. Christ underwent this torment and suffering for the sins of his people. He went through this unspeakable suffering in his sinlessness and innocence for you, believer. This is our king, a suffering servant. In his humiliation, his glory's veiled. He's undergoing so much torment and anguish for me. Aren't you glad that he's done this for you? Heidelberg Catechism captures this beautifully. Lord's Day 15, question 38. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Answer, that he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. We end by seeing how Pilate delivered Christ to be crucified. This word delivered stood out for me. And I think in the NIV it says handed over. Um, We read in verse 18 he was delivered by the leaders. But the crowd in them crying for him to be crucified in a sense they were delivering him up as well. And Pilate, he also delivered him up. Who's responsible? Well, the leaders are. The Jewish leaders, the the, the crowd is. And the Gentile governor is. In that corrupt system. But I want us to fast forward some years. Please, Please turn in your Bibles to Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. Now, the Greek for delivered in Acts 2 is different from Matthew 27. However, the meaning is surely very similar. Do you see what this says? Who's the main author of this plan? Who's the one that governs and superintends over all these things? Who's the one that orchestrates it? It's God. It's our covenant God. This was part of God's decree. What do I mean? What decree means? God's plan. Before the foundation of the world. In the council of peace between the Father and the Son. In eternity past, these events were foreordained for you and for me, believer. If you're a believer listening to this, your response should be one of overwhelming gratitude and joy. Acts 2 goes on to say, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Are you far off? If you're an unbeliever, You are far off, but this is good news. Don't don't stay like those Jewish leaders 
in Matthew 27. Don't stay like the crowd. Don't be like Pilate that represent all of them in some measure. Represent who we are without Christ. Come to Christ. He's now exalted at the right hand of the Father. And he invites sinners like you who have nothing to bring but your sin and your misery. Come to him and he will grant you repentance and faith and newness of life. What a saviour. We will now sing our closing hymn, He Stood Before the Court. His name be praised.